The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. One of the great advantages of being here on retreat is that we have this chance to take a closer look. We often say what a privilege it is for human beings to have the time and interest to be reflective, the supporting conditions that we have here on retreat, to take a closer look. And we casually assume, believe the stories that we've been told that there's a world here, that there's something solid like the planet Earth, like our body. It's just a world of things, of nouns. And we just haven't had the time or the interest to check it out, whether that way of being in the world actually lines up with experience. It's not so much what's a more elegant story or a better story as much as what actually aligns with our lived experience. There's a famous passage, and uh, Andy Olensky deconstructs this passage from the Buddha in an article that I made a couple copies of on the bookcase in the lobby that you can take a look at. I'm forgetting the title of his article right now, but here's one particular translation of this passage. And this first stanza it's really the Buddhist talking about samsara, this word that many of us have heard, which we generally, you know, if we have a superficial understanding, we think of samsara as like, you know, synonymous with suffering. But it's really about the ongoingness of our experience. You know, instead of some, you know, this idea that there are things, maybe slightly more accurately, we could say there's relating happening. In this moment, I'm relating. The mind is relating. And mostly what the mind is relating to is how I've been relating in the past. Right. So I'm relating, and in the next moment, I relate to what it was like to be relating in the previous moment. And then I relate to that. And then I relate to that. And I relate to that. Or we could get rid of the personal pronoun. And it's relating, relating to relating, relating to relating. Which is why, like a house of cards in Buddhism, we talk a lot about emptiness. How it seems quite substantial but actually not so much when we take a closer look. So here's the passage from this uh, Samyutta Nikaya. Immeasurable is this onflow. The earliest point cannot be known as beings obscured by ignorance, tied to craving, keep running on, keep flowing on. So that's a nice definition of samsara. And then a little further along. For a very long time, indeed, have you all encountered suffering, encountered confusion, encountered misery, and swelled the charnel grounds. It has surely been long enough to become disenchanted, long enough to become disengaged, long enough to become free from all formations, Formations are so impermanent, so unstable, so disappointing. 
And then this last part is actually a passage that's often chanted at funerals. This translation is how impermanent formations are. Their nature is to come and go. Having arisen, they vanish. Happiness comes from calming them. Another translation that we often chant, all conditions arise and pass away. Understanding this deeply leads to the deepest happiness, which is peace. So actually, I don't want to talk so much directly about the Buddhist teachings on impermanence tonight as instead to sort of set up the next couple nights as we talk about impermanence and spend a little bit more time tonight talking about the experience of embodiment. And in a way, really talking about the supporting causes for seeing things more clearly as they are. And that supporting cause, the primary supporting causes really too, is to be intimate, to really connect, to be honest, right? And to connect, to be intimate without a fixed view. In a way, that's synonymous. You can't, we, we can't really connect with the way it is if the mind is caught or established with a fixed view. Because as the Buddha says, no matter how our mind might conceive, imagine the way things are, that conception, that idea, is never the way it is. So we can't really be intimate with our life as long as the mind leads with a fixed idea. Or as long as the mind demands that I know what I'm opening to, you know, like I'm not going to open unless I know what I'm opening to. I want it written down. I want it, you know, I want an idea, a picture before I open. And, And practice is really the other way, which is, honey, you can't really connect if you're mind, if the mind is demanding a fixed idea. You have to put it aside in order to open, in order to see, in order to connect, in order to be intimate. And really the body is this, in some ways, perfect working ground, training ground for understanding, realizing the way things are. It's available, the experience of the body. And it and in a way the all the incentives line up. You know, like we might say with our family of origins, we have unfinished business with our body, you know, like unresolved issues with our body. Maybe trauma. So there are a lot of reasons that we want to begin with the body. So much of what allows the mind to wake up and see things more clearly and live in alignment is that we often say that stability of awareness or samadhi. So what often gets in the way of the mind settling down? It's the unfinished business with the body. I like to think, you know, as I, I mentioned in different ways last night, I like the, uh, some of the qualities that we often associate with nature or wild creatures.
one of the interesting things out at IMS in Massachusetts, Insight Meditation Society, um, because people have been practicing there a long time and there are very few entertainments. Uh, people have, over the years, um, used chickadees for entertainment. And uh, people, retreatants who've been around for a while, eventually figure out where the staff keep the black sunflower seeds. And we'll take some, and when they're out in the woods, we'll stand very still with some sunflower seeds in their hands. And probably now for generations, the chickadees have learned that, you know, the zombies out in the woods sometimes have black sunflower seeds. I was doing walk practice. Before I realized this, when I was still a novice IMS meditator, I was do my walking practice out in a field next to the buildings and, you know, just walking back and forth, standing for a few seconds at the end of each, you know, end of the each lane before I turned around. And so I was standing there and off in the distance, maybe seven, 75, 100 feet away, coming right at me. But I, I didn't even know what it was. You know, if a bird comes right at you, you don't really recognize it, except it kind of goes up and down a little bit. <laughs> And it kept getting closer because it just associated like a human being or whatever that looks like to the chickadee, you know, that shape standing still like that, you know, there's some decent probability that there are black sunflower seeds to be had. So it's like, and when it got a couple feet in front of me, I just freaked out. I had no idea what was, I thought it was going to hit me. It's like somehow a blind chickadee flying through the woods of IMS. And like, I freaked out, and then I think the bird freaked out because <laughs> I, you know, was sort of gestured in a wild way. But I eventually found my way to where the black sunflower seeds, and I myself stood there. But there, one of the, the amazing things about that, I mean, besides being sort of something to proliferate around, do the chickadees really love me? Will Joseph Goldstein see me doing this and and think I'm a bad meditator? But, you know, in, in more simple, mindful moments, you know, it's, there's something about a little creature landing and, um, there's the, the mysteries right there and, you know, how they do the feathers and how they do the flight and how they break the seeds open and their little claws. And it's so amazing how light they are. If you've never weighed or felt a bird, like even a, picked up a dead bird, it's just incredible how light they are. But the, the point I want to make here is how natural it was for the mind to be radically intimate and non-judging and tender-hearted. It wasn't like a stance I had with the bird or anything like that. It was the most simple, natural thing. And then the interesting question is, why do we relate to this body so differently or this life so differently? What's, what's actually the difference? Another time, a good friend of mine, a long time, a Vipassana practitioner, someone who taught in Ka- at Kamagana in the early years, in the early 90s, when we first started. We used to teach the introduction class together. He's moved out to California a long time ago. But So Paul and I were standing at Nierstrand State Park. Is it Nierstrand? Nierstrand State Park? Just south of here, not too far. And we're having, and Paul and I could have really great conversations about the Dharma and we and we were just standing there for about 15 minutes in the middle of the woods, uh, and uh, and then we looked down and there was a fawn and I'm not kidding it was like two and a half feet away and we'd been there like 15 minutes because I didn't realize as we talked to the ranger afterward, but their you know their instinct their mother leaves them because they're safer just sitting still lying down and sitting still somewhere in the woods than they are following their mother around. <clears throat> They're just much more susceptible to being caught by a predator. 
So their instinct is to not move, even if something feels really close. But it was just amazing to be standing there and seeing, I mean, I don't know how old it was, but it was not very old. And I've had other experiences of being around close to wild creatures, and it's always the same. And it always has struck me how somehow arrogantly sure that this body, this life, isn't deserving of the same kind of tenderness and sense of awe and curious presence. And I, you know, I've over the years traced it to a kind of arrogant certainty that I think I know what this body is, for example, and I'm absolutely sure I don't know anything about the fawn, the frog, the chickadee, or whatever it might be. Imagine, you know, when we sit down or in the middle of a set, if you're using the experience, the direct, immediate experience of the body as a support for your continuity of awareness practice. Imagine if we had that same attitude, tuning into the body. It is, I mean, we all, at least intellectually, know it's actually a miracle, like that the body has the coherence and the integrity and, you know, just the way of operating, the sophistication and nimbleness of dealing with the different insults that come, you know, our way. The cuts and the bacteria and, the, you know, all the different things that the body has to manage. It's really astounding. But when's the last time we've had that simple, profound awe, sense of mystery, sense of respect, sense of a devoted interest, devoted presence with the body, like a a clear certainty that we don't know, so that we really want to know, we really want to listen or pay attention. This is one of my favorite passages from Wendell Berry, you know, a naturalist. And anyway, he wrote, and this is the, forget if it's an article or a book, The Unforeseen Wilderness. He writes, Always in the big woods, when you leave familiar ground and step off alone into a new place, there will be, along with the feelings of curiosity and excitement, a little nagging of dread. It is the ancient fear of the unknown, and it is your first bond with the wilderness you're going into. What you are doing is exploring. You are undertaking the first experience, not of the place, but of yourself in the place. So that's that point of relating. Right? What's relevant always in the moment isn't so much what the mind is knowing, but the way the mind is relating, that the mind is relating, and the quality of that way the mind is relating. He goes on and writes, It is an experience of essential loneliness, for nobody can discover the world for anyone else. It is only after we have discovered it for ourselves that it becomes a common ground and a common bond, and we cease to be alone. Thich Nhat Hanh, this uh, Vietnamese Buddhist monk, has a beautiful image, um, like how we show up to the body, the quality of presence, and he likens it to sunshine hitting a flower or a bud or a plant, and how the sunshine doesn't go around the plant, around the flower, it has a way of penetrating 
You know, we use words like being the observer of the body, being a witness to the body. But it's more useful to think of the awareness or the presence sort of being right in the middle or from the inside out. Or that image that Thich Nhat Hanh uses, like a, <clears throat> a sort of a warmth that penetrates, that's not content with seeing things superficially or seeing things as they've been seen before. Like precisely not the mind, the heart, not wanting to be imprisoned by what we think about the body. And uh, many of you know, because you've been at it for a while, it's not so easy to be aware of the body in and of itself. I mean, this just as a sort of a heads up to where we're going. I mean, being aware of the body in and of itself means being aware of impermanence, being aware of the ephemeral, insubstantial, space-like nature. What, more than anything, what gives the body the sense of permanence, solidity, are our, are our ideas about the body. And I know, because I do too, I want to argue with myself, no, that's solid, you know, there's skin and muscle and bone and blood. There's weight. It aches. This leg has been really aching the last couple of months. I think because of an old injury, but I'm not really sure. But I am sure it hurts. And, uh, you know, as I've gotten older too, it's just like, it's just so apparent, the solidity. Like I'm so much more convinced because I have like evidence that there bones ache and I feel the cold in a different way and, you know, just not as limber and all those sort of things that reinforce this idea of the body as some solid edifice. But see, that that idea arises from a, world, a particular world view that there's a me who's sensitive, gazing out at a world, including like the world of my body, so a subject knowing objects, and that objects have this existence. And we don't, that sort of dualistic subject-object goes unquestioned. But that's not mindfulness practice. We might say, you know, this is being known. Sounds a little bit like subject-object. But what do we find when we continue with that practice of this is being known, this is being known? The object starts to look like the subject, right? The subject is empty, objects become empty. This is something for us to explore, just in observing the body. So how do we, you know, over time with practice, how do we begin to break free of our arrogant habits of thinking that we know what the body is? Because we can't even start practice unless we've loosened the screws a little bit. Otherwise, when we sit and practice mindfulness of the body. And remember, mindfulness of the body is just the gateway drug for mindfulness of the way it is, right? It's not like, it's sort of the stand-in for the world. The body is the stand-in for the world. If we can be intimate with the body, we can be intimate with everything. If we don't know how to be intimate with the body, how are we going to realize or see or open to things as they are. And, you know, two of the strongest views we have of the body, it's, you know, kind of relates to that question that Saida Utejaniya asked. I realized I was doing some reviewing of my notes that were unrelated, 
remember I made that point last night about Saida Utejaniya, this Burmese teacher, Buddhist monk, who said, you know, asked the question, is the practice optimistic or pessimistic? And then after we embarrassed ourselves, said, no, it's realistic. Evidently, it was um, Wahula, uh, what was his name? Something Wahula, one of uh, a Sri Lankan monk who was in the States way back, I think in the 60s, and he wrote uh, a booklet called What the Buddha Taught. And, uh, and he used that, he asked that question in that book. Is the, did the Buddha teach, is what the Buddha taught optimistic or pessimistic? And then he gives the answer, you know, it's realistic. And it's the same, basically the same frame with the body. Like some moments during the day, we have a pretty optimistic view of the body. It's like, it's my ticket to heaven because I get to take a hot bath, I get to have lunch, I get to sit in the sun, I get to go skiing, I get to see this, touch that, smell something. And sometimes today, probably, the body was a really heavy burden. Oh, you know, like ball and chain, that image that we have, that we have to drag along with all of its problems, the hangnail, the food in between two teeth, the, you know, bad taste in the mouth, the congestion in the sinuses, the ache in the back, the throbbing headache, the gnawing hunger, the being too cold, being too hot. So is the body here as kind of a pleasure field for us to delight in? Is the body here as punishment for being bad? You know, so we ended up with this body in this way. Somebody's out to get us because we didn't have, didn't get this other kind of body that feels this other kind of way or looks another kind of way. And you see how the whole question um, really revolves around a sense of me. And the body's not here. The body is just the activity of nature. It's not here to please us and it's not here to torture us. It's just like that we could say the same thing about the weather or about our friends or our friends here is the responsibility of my partner or my friends, my family. Is it their responsibility to make me happy? Or are they here to torment me? You see, we have this idea about the world. We, it's hard for us to conceive that the activity of the body, the activity of the world, it isn't about us or isn't about anybody. It's just this lawful activity, the many, many causes and conditions doing what it's doing. I mean, it's, that's what's so neat about the chickadee or the fawn or the squirrel, or whatever expression of nature has gotten your attention in the past, part of what makes it so amazing is it there's some sense that it's not about us. I mean, isn't that true when you look up at the sky and you see all those stars or you have a big view? Part of what is so moving not that we even say it to ourselves, but on some subtle, mostly unspoken level, we know it has nothing to do with me. It's, that's kind of what makes it amazing. That it has that independence Empty of self, right? This is this is what the Buddha means by being empty of self. It has nothing to do with me. 
nothing has anything to do with me ultimately, but just the beginning insight, you know, to step out into the cold on your way home tonight. Because it can feel so personal, like a personal burden to have to, especially those of you on bikes, you know, and to have to feel what we feel. It's very hard for the mind not to construct and believe stories that are personal, that personalize experience. We do this all the time with our dear ones when they're, you know, in a good mood or in a bad mood. It's really hard not to personalize it. What did I say? (laughs) What did I do wrong? You must really love me because you're happy. (laughs) Have you had that? It's like, you know, always seeing things. Uh, We do this with our cat, you know. It's like when our cat's around us and purring, it's like we project, we personify the experience as if we have this incredible relationship that transcends species. You know, it's like it's so deep and pure. (laughs) And, And when the cat ignores us, it's like we personify that too. Like this, you know, unimaginable gulf that exists between us, you know, and he's so in his own space, unwilling to step, you know, into this beautiful relationship we could have. felt like a a good thing to spend some time on tonight because so much of what we do during these four and a half days is, you know, one way or another, um, when we remember that this is being known, to some degree we're going to be feeling the activity of sensation, the activity of the body the movement of sensation. And this insight into the changing nature is liberating, right? Because no human being, none of the great practitioners before us, the women, the men, the people that have practiced before us and realized deep wisdom and compassion. None of them let go. You know, we always think, I just need to let go. I just need to drop attachment. It's so, like sometimes it seems so close at hand. We see that the mind is clinging, fixed on something, obsessing in some way. And we know, like, I just need to put this down. We just need to let go. We can almost taste what a relief. It's like knowing we've got a 75-pound backpack or 50-pound backpack. It's like, oh, yeah. I mean, it's true, isn't it? Like when we're holding a heavy load, we can intuit how good it would feel to put it down. But nobody puts down attachment. It's really attachment falls away either when the mind becomes entranced with another attachment or attachment falls away when there's insight, when the mind understands that the way it is, Attachment doesn't make sense when the mind understands the way it is, when the mind understands the ephemeral nature, the impersonal nature, the limited nature. It only makes sense when the mind doesn't, isn't connected, connecting. So this is something we can experiment directly with the body. Does 
our struggles with the body, do they intensify when the awareness is more stable and continuous, more honest, more subtle and sensitive to the body? Or when our attention, the stability of awareness, wisdom awareness, when that becomes more stable and continuous, does the suffering of attachment lighten up? Do we feel more free? That's the interesting question. And we can, we can test, we can experiment all week long. The letting go, or you know, put it in more positive terms, the liberation of the heart, the unprovoked awareness release, as Ajahn Tanisaro calls it, or freedom from suffering, nibbana, the cessation of all craving, the fire of craving going out. Right. So these are different ways uh, in the tradition we talk about freedom, liberation. So when the wisdom awareness gets intimate with the body, does suffering evaporate? Or because the mind, the awareness is more sensitive, more tuned, does the suffering increase? Because otherwise what we we fall into this pattern of judging ourselves when there's attachment and suffering and thinking I'm doing something wrong and I'm to blame. I'm a bad practitioner. And then when we're feeling really spacious and light and open-hearted and more free, we also personalize that because that's the habit. I'm practicing well. That's so good. You know, We want people to notice or... Or we're, you know, we're so sophisticated, we want people to not notice so we don't have to you know, carry that burden of being the one who's enlightened. Want to be, they actually have a term for the Pacheta Buddhas, you know, the ones who are enlightened and became enlightened by themselves and don't really teach you know, secret Buddhas. <laughs> but in any case, it's just a self, another you know, more refined self-trip. So to see that the liberation, so having a body, because like I said before, the body represents karma, like it's a little subset of karma, this embodied reality that we're here in this time and place with this world, with this body, these circumstances, this life. And then the interesting question is, How do I find, where is the freedom in this? What sets freedom in motion? What sets suffering in motion? It's all in motion. It's just a question, like there's no middle ground. It's either like, either we're setting suffering in motion, things are getting tighter, more constricted, or that constriction, that tightness, that weight is being abandoned. And this is playing out all the time. And it's playing out right in the body in terms of this, not the body. I mean, we say mindfulness of the body, but what did I say at the beginning? We're being mindful. We're waking up that what's really happening here is relating. It's not the body. The body doesn't really exist without the relating. What's the body without what we call the mind that is relating, that is knowing the body? Right? So there's only this moment of relating to the body or this moment of relating to the way it is. And in this moment of relating to the body, we can sense if the awareness is curious and stable enough whether things are getting heavier and tighter or whether things are becoming freer and lighter. And if you think, well, you know, I can't tell. Right? But even that, you can sense. Like even 
knowing that you don't know, the interesting thing is, is there a problem there? Is that a cause of getting tight? Or can we relate to not knowing whether things are getting worse or better? Can that be the ground of freedom? Right, so this is what we're using the body as a ground, the ground for liberation, being free with it and being free with anything associated with this moment of relating to the body, you know, like all the baggage, all the ad- attitudinal baggage that's there. Maybe I'll just end uh, sharing a little bit. This is from Sharon Salzberg. Um, I think one of her better books, A Heart as Wide as the World. And she's talking in this chapter on pain. The chapter is titled Seeing Pain. talking about her early years in meditation and how much pain there was in her body. And then, so this is uh, several paragraphs into this chapter. All of our lives, we are taught to run from physical, we are taught to run from physical or psychological pain or to disguise it as if it were disgraceful. Isn't that true? And you know, we often, it feels a little bit like a personal failure if we have a lot of pain. And this is, I, I think, a serious misunderstanding of the teachings on karma that I think are pretty commonplace these days, um, where we've associated the Buddhist teachings on karma with, um, like, in kind of a Christian context of punishment for being bad. And that's not at all what the Buddha means. The teachings on karma is just that things are conditional or lawful. Not that they're personal. The Buddha's teaching exactly the opposite. But things are lawful. So like when this mind is really negative, really angry, and acts out that anger, that acting out anger leaves an impression on the mind, on the body and mind. And that impression has consequences. It's like in the next moment, I'm the person who's really angry and acted it out in the previous moment. I'm a different person having just acted out the anger in the next moment because I'm the person who acted out the anger as opposed to someone who noticed the impulse to be angry, realized that's just an impulse to be angry and it feels like this. Oh, that's unpleasant. Can that be okay? Yeah. Okay. It's really unpleasant, but I can feel that. Okay. And so I restrained from acting out. So then in the next moment, I'm the person who felt the impulse to be angry, realized that anger is just that feeling being known, didn't act it out. Well, that's a different human being. It's like a fork in the road. So that's what karma means. The Buddha's not telling a, trying to tell a personal story about it. And then Sharon goes on, she writes, We often believe that we should be able to make pain go away. Rarely do we sit down in an open, relaxed, non-judgmental way, genuinely explore and generally explore the pain in our lives. Meditation practice is a powerful tool for revealing our conditional reactions to unpleasant experiences allowing us to penetrate to the very depth. Opening to painful experiences does not mean a passive acceptance of pain. Rather, we learn to go to the heart of each moment's experience, even if it's painful, because there, unclouded by conditioning, we discover our lives. The effort to push away what is unpleasant, the tendency to protect, to project pain into the future, and then feel overcome by it. The interpretations we add to it all keep us from having a personal, direct, and intimate acquaintance with what's with what we're actually experiencing. So when we observe something like pain directly, we come to see its actual nature. Like everything else, pain is a changing phenomenon with no inherent substance. 
So I'll leave it here, pass it on to Shelley for her reflections if she has some. It's so useful to hear from people like Sharon Salzberg or a person who came to mind when Mark was reading that, um, what Sharon had said in her book. I remembered Spring Washam being here and just feeling her presence and how embodied she was in her um, presence here at the center. And I'm about two-thirds of the way through her book, and she recounts some really horrific trauma in her life. And just as a model of someone who's learned to be in her body after experiencing what she had, it's just a real... She's a real example of hope for me and hopefully for all of us. It's complicated learning to be in our bodies. It can be. And for many of us, it, it's a process. And getting to that, that place where we can actually be intimate with the body and see the, the truth of experience that you know, it's not worth clinging to. That it, the body has a life of its own and is a result of causes and conditions. It's just a lawful unfolding of nature. That's takes some time often. Um, And often it takes the kind of intentional, kind of psychological um, effort to, on a conventional sense, make peace with the experiences we've had in our lives and often the experiences of trauma or injury to the body. But I found, at least in my life, a way to be in my body. Now it's hard not to be in my body, but you know, finding ways to care about my body or to love my body, um, to sort of reclaim, to have some agency, right? To feel like I have some say over the experiences of my body. That is not has not been easy, but a way has been through just curiosity. Like it's a tall order to to embrace and love my body in moments and to really care about my body, but to be curious about the body, that's doable. And so just taking it step by step, feeling the body, I remember a long time ago, one of my first a therapist I had a long, long time ago asked me just a real basic question like when I was talking about an emotional experience I was having, well, where do you feel that in your body? And it was like, what? Like in my body? What do you mean? It's an emotion. It's not in my body. But just that simple like noticing of the body, what happened that, you know, that emotion has a resonance in the body, that what's known in the mind has a felt experience in the body. It's probably the only tool we actually need, the body. But it's complicated. (laughs) So we have to proceed gently with a lot of care. Mm-hmm. I wrote down a quote earlier that resonated with me. Bessel van der Kolk is a, you know, Bessel van der Kolk. The Body Keeps the Score. It's a great book. It's about um, trauma, but it's really relevant, I think, 
to anybody, especially if we broaden our understanding of trauma and think about um, kind of the threat of trauma and the threat of injury to the body that a lot of people feel a lot of the time. I certainly know as a a woman that it's hard to feel safe, that this it's hard to feel safe, that this body isn't under some sort of threat at times, and that has an impact, right? It's conditioning, that conditioning over my entire life has an impact. Bessel van der Kolk said, once you start approaching your body with curiosity rather than fear, everything shifts. And there's a real reason why therapists, anybody who supports people in trauma, I'm not sure why that's happening. (laughs) Oh, got it. Why yoga, some mindful movement, is a critical piece to healing. Right? It's just a way to learn to get in, to be in our bodies, to experience, to feel, to get curious about our bodies. So important to learn to be free in our body, Qigong practice. Just that, you know, we can even experiment the course of this retreat, just being free with the way we move our bodies. When Wen's teaching yoga or I'm leading Qigong just to see how close we can get to the experience of having a body, being in our body, feeling the body, and being willing to tolerate some of the difficult emotions that might arise, especially in the context of a a container that's relatively safe. Practitioners in community with each other doing a similar practice, learning how to be in our bodies together. I think that's what I have to offer tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.